0: Good morning again how are you guys doing you well Wow, you guys okay yeah you hanging in there all right well good morning uh, man i'm i 'm so overwhelmed with gratitude um, for the surprise and I just want to say thank you. Um, I am so honored to be able to serve alongside you here at mission church and i 'm honored to to be a pastor here and so I'm just grateful and thank you for that, that surprise and that gift that means so much to me and my family. And uh, I, I can't express in a way that, that really communicates how I feel in a way that, that uh, I'm so thankful that the Lord has me here, a part of Mission Church, and, um, and just thank you. Now, if you're new to Mission Church, my name is John. I serve as one of the pastors here. Our mission at Mission Church is to Partner with God to see His kingdom come in Las Vegas as it is in heaven. And we are working to accomplish this goal by growing together as disciples of Jesus who who love Jesus. Who are intentionally pursuing to live like Him and, and are intentional in leading others to Jesus and then disciple them as well. Last Sunday was a beautiful day. We had an opportunity to witness Marissa's baptism It was a beautiful day, and if, like Marissa, if you too have trusted in Jesus, and Jesus alone for your salvation, but you have yet to take that step of obedience to be baptized, I would love to personally invite you to sign up for our next baptism class, which will be held on September 17th. You can either sign up on our website, or you can scan the QR code at the resource table, we'll get you all set up for that. But uh, we'd love to get you to that class. Now, this morning we're continuing, as you saw in the video, our study through the Gospel according to Matthew. A series that we have entitled, The King and His Kingdom. Last week, Matthew gave us front row seats to one of the greatest battles in history. The temptation of Jesus in the Judean wilderness. A battle in which Jesus was victorious. And His victory is, is our victory. Jesus is our victorious king in the face of temptation, Jesus remained obedient. Obedient to God, thereby fulfilling the righteous requirements of God's law on our behalf. You see, Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. Adam disobeyed God and brought us ruin. Jesus obeyed God and brought us redemption. If you missed last Sunday's sermon, I want to encourage you to check out the podcast and and take a listen But this morning, I want to invite you to turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, we're continuing on our journey. And when you get there, Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 through 17. When he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken to the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, along the road by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who live in darkness, have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From then on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. May these words be written on our hearts this morning. Would you join me in prayer? God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the opportunity we have to sit under the counsel of Your Word. I pray, God, that You would soften our hearts. Whether we have calluses that are built up because of unrepentant sin or disobedience, or unbelief, I pray, Lord, that You would soften our hearts so we have a greater understanding of You, a greater understanding of the Gospel. I pray, Lord, that You would stir our affections for Christ away from the things of this world, that we would be focused on You, that we would turn our eyes to Jesus. And Lord, as we see how the Kingdom of God dawned, I pray, Lord, that You would help us and equip us to leave here today on the mission that you've called us to as your followers. For those here this morning that don't know you, this, this charge that you give us in this text to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. I pray, Lord, that you would give the gift of faith where it does not reside. We pray, Lord, that you would do your work in us this morning. Lord, we thank you for your, your goodness and your grace and your mercy. I pray, Lord, that as I preach, the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart would be pleasing and acceptable in Your sight. For You are our rock and our Redeemer, and we love You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Life, my friends, can be an arduous journey, for it's riddled with challenges, frustrations, and heartache. We're all too familiar with the dense fog of disappointment that rolls in when our dreams are shattered, when relationships are broken, and when the weight of loss becomes unbearable. Why is this world so tangled in chaos? Why do our relationships seem to be an endless struggle? and, And why does everything feel like an uphill battle all the time, relentlessly testing our endurance? Life it does seem to be when you step back and look at it from a perspective that, that it's accompanied by a feeling of weariness, of sadness, even a despair that creeps in when we're confused by the harsh realities of a world that's scarred by brokenness and sin. And sin, well, sin has not only severed our connection to God, but it has Plunged us into a spiritual darkness. It has casted us adrift into the shadow land of death and despair, and as a result, we are left desperately yearning for deliverance, longing for hope, and searching for joy and peace and restoration. Well, our text this morning, Matthew provides us not only with an, an historical account of the beginning of Christ's ministry, but he also extends to us an invitation. An invitation to encounter the light that that pierces through this overwhelming spiritual darkness that we live in. The light that offers us a way out of this swamp of despondency. The metaphor of light is one of the most beautiful and striking and compelling metaphors that that is in the Scriptures that describes Jesus' nature and character. For it communicates the illuminating, the the truth-revealing and sin-exposing ministry of the Son of God. It's because Jesus illuminated, uncovered, and overcame the darkness that all who step into His light will receive the promise of joy, liberation from oppression, victory over enemies, a lasting peace, a citizenship in a new and perfect kingdom, a kingdom that we will see in our short time together that dawned at the perfect time, in the perfect and ideal location, and with a specific invitation. The dawning of a kingdom arrives at the perfect time, the ideal location, with a specific invitation. Let's begin with this first movement. The perfect time. And look back at verse 12, Matthew 4. When He heard that John had been arrested, He withdrew into Galilee. I always found it interesting that Jesus had waited so long to begin His ministry before He launched His ministry, but even the Son of God works according to the Father's divine timetable. And as you read the Gospel accounts of the life of Jesus, it seems as though Jesus had this divine clock ticking in His heart and in His mind which regulated everything that He did. In fact, I'm reminded on how several occasions in the life of Jesus when He was in danger, He would say to His disciples to assure them that the hour of My death has not yet come. And then later, in the Garden of Gethsemane, after Judas has betrayed Him and, and He's going to be arrested, He told His disciples that the hour of His death was near. Paul, he affirms this divine timetable several times in his letters. In fact, he declares that Jesus was born and that He died according to God's perfect timing. Consider Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, which says, When the time came to completion, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And then in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, it says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. So with Jesus' birth and His death falling perfectly on God's divine timetable, it would make sense that the, the launch of His ministry would also be according to God's perfect timing. And so in verse 12, following His testing in the Judean wilderness, we find Jesus in Nazareth and he hears that Herod Antipas has arrested John the Baptist you see Jesus or John the Baptist had courageously confronted and condemned Herod we'll hear more about this in our journey through Matthew in chapter 14 but for this morning we we understand that that Herod he called or John the Baptist called Herod to repentance because of his evilness which you as you can imagine calling an evil king to repent from his evil, did not go over so well. Not only did it get him arrested, but we find out that later it, it got him beheaded. Now, remember who John was. He was Christ's forerunner. It was his job to pave the path for the coming of the King. To pave to point the long to the long-awaited, the promised Messiah. In other words, John, who was part of the Old Covenant community, he was the, the herald of the coming King. And his arrest was a sign that his time of preparing the way for the Lord had come to an end. It was now the perfect timing for the ministry of the Messiah King to begin. See, this was all according to God's divine plan and timetable. The end of the herald's work signaled the beginning of the kings. Now, confronting evil... Condemning darkness and wickedness is dangerous, especially evil leadership. And many believe that this is why Jesus withdrew. Many will say that it was because of John's arrest, his eventual beheading, that caused Jesus to withdraw from Nazareth to Galilee. But, friends, I don't think that's the case. I think this is further from the truth because, you see, Jesus did not just win a battle against Satan in the wilderness to go and run away from King Herod. That makes no sense. We do not serve a weak king who runs from evil, but we serve a courageous king who confronts evil. You see, Jesus withdrawing to Galilee was not him escaping out of fear for his life from King Herod. Jesus fears no man, and he surely was no less brave than John. And if Jesus was running away, he would have gone somewhere else because Herod was also the governor, the tetrarch, over Galilee over this area. So he wasn't running away from anyone. If anything, he's going to the front lines of the battle. Friends, we serve a courageous King who at the right time took on human flesh, who at the right time battled against our greatest enemies of sin, Satan, and death, He's lived a perfect life of righteousness, a life that you and I have failed to live, and at the right time, He died the death that you and I deserve to die because of our sins. And three days later, He rose from the grave victoriously, defeating once and for all sin and death. Jesus is our courageous King who began His ministry at the perfect time. And in the ideal location, look at verses 12-13. through When he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. When I was a little kid, I remember lying under the pews in service. (laughs) And I would take my father's Bible and I would study the maps in the back of his Bible. I made note of all the different cities and all the different regions. I was enamored by the geography and all the funny names I couldn't pronounce. But as I got older, the, I didn't spend as much time studying the geography and uh, honestly kind of gloss over verses like this with silly names like Zebulon and Naphtali, and I spent more time studying the person and the work of Jesus Christ, kind of glossed over the, gloss, uh, glossed over the geography, and maybe you're like me and you too have a tendency to kind of just gloss over verses like these, especially if you've never been to Galilee or Jerusalem. I mean, You see, it's tough to picture these places, these locations, and to see the significance of what Matthew is writing here, but skipping over these verses would not be wise. We would miss out on so much that God is communicating by telling us the location in which Jesus was going. See, the region of Zebulun and Naphtali was kind of a borderland. It was neither fully Gentile nor... Nor was it fully Jewish. It was a culturally and spiritually dark place. In fact, if you were to read the history of this region in the Old Testament, you would read about how God had given this area of land to the tribes of Zebulon and Naphtali. They were two of the twelve tribes of Israel, but the tribes, they didn't obey God's command to expel the enemies of God, to expel the Canaanites from the land. They, they failed to obey. And as a result of their unfaithfulness, these Jews succumbed to the inevitable temptation of pagan influences. Later, we would read in, in the first Kings how King Solomon described this area as Worthless. This area of land and the people that lived there were insignificant to him, and he even sold this whole region at one time to a pagan king, King Hiram, to pay off his debt. And then in 2 Kings, we read about how the Assyrian kings came in and plundered this area, then conquered the region, ultimately bringing in captivity, destruction, and tragedy. In fact, Isaiah 7 and 8 warned that God was going to to bring in Assyria to invade. Why? Why? Because God's people were listening to and obeying demonic influence. Demonic mediums. They were going to spiritualists instead of the Lord and His law. And God warned them, if you refuse to turn back to Me, if you refuse to listen to Me, you will no longer see the dawn, only darkness. In fact, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 22 records this. And says, they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and the gloom of affliction and they will be driven into thick darkness you see galilee the area of zebulon and naphtali was an area of thick spiritual darkness with a history of war death gloom and anguish it was a region populated by the social religious political outcasts and this is the exact place where jesus goes to launch his ministry it is not by accident that this is where jesus goes Notice Jesus didn't choose Judea where John the Baptist was ministering, nor did he launch his ministry in Jerusalem alongside the spiritual and political elites. Rather, he goes to Capernaum near the Sea of Galilee, a place that was known for being full of unfaithful and uneducated Jews, pagan Gentiles, and backwoods, unsophisticated country folk. Why? It's the opposite of every church planning book I've ever read. You're supposed to go to, wouldn't it make more sense for Jesus to launch His ministry with the financial backing of the church in Jerusalem? and The ministry of political and financial influence of the Jewish upper class? Why would He choose to go to no, Nowheresville to preach and to teach and to heal among the lowly, the despised, and the outsiders? It doesn't make much sense. But friends, when was the last time that God did anything in your life that made a lot of sense? Brothers and sisters, God has never been bound by the great expectations of men. God exercises His mission. He exercises His redeeming grace. How and where and why and when He sovereignly chooses to do so. And if we can trust Him with the timetable of salvation, then we can trust Him with anything else we might be experiencing this morning. So, Jesus, he doesn't go to Jerusalem, he goes to Judea, or he doesn't go to Judea, he goes to live in Galilee, an area that once belonged to the tribes of Zebulon and Naphtali. And he did so to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 8, or chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, in which Matthew quotes, look at verses 14 and 15. This was to fulfill what was spoken to the prophet Isaiah land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, along the road by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Matthew, again, he's quoting from the, the great prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1-2. through 2. And this tells us the reason why Jesus goes to Galilee. In fact, Isaiah predicted this would take place eight centuries before. And this fact alone, that Jesus accurately and completely fulfilled Old Testament prophecy should be enough to convince any honest skeptic of the truthfulness and the authority of God's Word. You see, just as the prophet Isaiah said, it was the despised, the sin-stained, and the rebellious people of Galilee who were the first to see the Messiah. The first to witness the beginning of God's new covenant. It wasn't the mighty and beautiful city of Jerusalem, but the disregarded Galilee of the Gentiles who first heard the Messiah's message. It wasn't the educated, it wasn't the proud and the the religiously pure, but rather it was the mixed multitude of Samaria and Galilee, those who had been outcast, those who have been discounted, those who were looked down upon. Brothers and sisters, Jesus came for those who were in their greatest need and recognized that they had a great need. It was into this land of oppression and dispersion and corrosive moral and spiritual influences. It was into this land of impending death and divine judgment that Jesus came with the words of, and deeds of grace, of mercy, of God's love and truth and hope. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And friends, the light is the light for all people. It's a light for all people everywhere who find themselves in distress. All people everywhere who find themselves in darkness, in the gloom of affliction. Friend, the good news of the Gospel is good news for everyone. No matter where you are, no matter where you've been, no matter where you find yourself this morning, today the message of the Gospel is a light shining into whatever darkness you find yourself in. The light that the world needs The light that you and I need cannot be found in counterfeit lights of psychology, mystic spiritualism, or political affiliations. You need the light of life, which is Jesus, Christ Himself. There is only one true light, only one true Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who offers the forgiveness of sins and eternal life to a dark and dying world. The only path to lasting peace The only path to liberation from oppression to victory over your enemies and eternal wisdom is found in the shadow of the cross of Christ. And the only way to find real life, eternal life, is found when you kneel at the foot of the cross and allow the light of Christ to graciously expose your darkness. Leading you to repentance. Leading you to faith. To turn from your sin. To follow Jesus. Friend, a great light has dawned in the land of the shadow of death. And you will never find any other light other than the light of Christ. Now we should remember that Matthew's not just quoting only a portion of Isaiah chapter 9, but he's he's referencing the entire context. In other words, he wants us to remember everything in this prophecy that Isaiah is is sharing with us, especially verses 6 through 7. This is a common text, especially around Christmas time. But Matthew, he wants us to. Have this in mind, which says for a child will be born to us, for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Brothers and sisters, Jesus was born to reestablish the reign and the throne of King David. And this new kingdom, this perfect kingdom which was established the moment that Christ came to earth is a kingdom, friends, that will never end. We sang, you will reign forever. Forever. His kingdom will never end. Our King Jesus will forever reign as our wonderful Counselor. He will forever reign as our mighty God. He will forever reign as our eternal Father and our Prince of Peace. And friends, this is a guarantee for God says the Lord of armies will accomplish this. In other words, God's zeal for God's glory will make this kingdom last forever. And there is no power on heaven, no power on earth or under the earth that can stop it. And this is the kingdom that you and I have been invited to. This is the kingdom that you and I are praying would come here in Las Vegas as it is in heaven. The question is how? How can I become a citizen of this new and perfect kingdom? And the answer to this question leads us to Christ's specific invitation in verse 17. His specific invitation From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Notice His sermon is exactly the same as His forerunner. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And Jesus' sermon was short, but it's extremely profound. Extremely urgent. And with authority and with certainty, He preached, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now what does it mean to repent? Repent. Well, some view repentance as feeling bad for something you've done or failed to do. Others have said that repentance means to, to change your mind. In fact, that's the definition I hear most often to, to change your mind. But I think repentance involves so much more than just a change of mind. Rather, repentance is a complete personal change. Repentance is a complete change of mind, change of heart, change of hands. To repent means that you turn away from your sin and you turn towards God and His grace. Repentance is a change of mind that stems from a change of heart which results in a change of behavior. Biblical repentance also involves confession. There has to be a sense in which you are omitting your wrong. Admitting your sin, admitting your guilt, there is also a sorrow that stems from that recognition. There's a deep and weighty realization that you not only sinned, but you sinned against a holy and mighty God. It's the kind of sorrow that we see in Psalm 51, where David expresses his anguish. He cries out in his brokenness Against you and you alone, I have sinned and done evil in your sight. See, repentance is not merely feeling sorry or having a selfish regret over getting caught. Rather, godly sorrow is a deep realization that you have offended God. In other words, biblical repentance means much more than simply feeling bad about sin. Consider what the Apostle Paul writes in in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. He says, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. In worldly sorrow, you feel bad for yourself. It's pain, a it's shame, it's damaged reputation or relationships lead you to feel bad. But godly sorrow, the sinner wants to see justice done. Wants to see his relationship with God restored. His relationship with his brothers and sisters in Christ restored. So true repentance always looks inward at our own sinfulness and recognizes it. And then outward at the harm our sin has caused to others and then upward to the Lord and His grace. I'm reminded of the Westminster Catechism. There's a question in there, number 76, that says, what is repentance unto life? What is repentance unto life? And the answer is, repentance unto unto life is a saving grace. Grace. Wrought in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and the Word of God, whereby out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and, I can't ever say that word right, but odiousness of sins, and upon apprehension of God's mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, he so grieves for and hates his sin that he turns from them all to God, purposing and endeavoring constantly to walk with him in all the ways of new obedience. In other words, Put this another way true repentance is more than shame over your behavior or sorrow over pain that you may have inflicted on yourself or others. Rather, repentant grieves that he has offended God. He hates the sin that he has committed. Then he turns from his sin and he turns to a gracious God. And he does so because he knows that God is good, he does so because he knows that God is faithful. He knows that God is merciful. And he knows that true repentance entails a constant endeavor to pursue a life that is following God, that is walking with God in obedience. Turning to Jesus daily for His mercy and empowering grace to live a life that loves Jesus, that lives like Jesus, and leads others to Jesus. I love how this catechism calls this repentance, calls it a grace and a fruit of the Spirit. And it reminds me, of what we read in Acts chapter 11, verse 18, it says, when they heard this, they became silent and they glorified God, so then God has given repentance resulting in life even to the Gentiles. In other words, it is unless the Holy Spirit of God enlightens us, we will never see that sin is rebelling against God. It's only by a grace of God that you mourn your sin, that you grieve your sin. And It is only because God has enlightened you to this reality. The Spirit speaks and the Spirit convicts, and then we listen and we forsake our sinful ways and return to the Lord. Every step of this is a grace of God who works in us. In other words, biblical repentance involves a a conversion. Repentance means that you turn away from your sin, there's a change of behavior. You start finding your sin filthy and gross, and this change of heart is a result of the Holy Spirit working in you, changing your desires, turning you to the Lord. It spills into a total change of life. And so that's how we faithfully, biblically repent. We recognize our sin. We express our sorrow for it. We renounce it. We turn away from it. And then we replace our sin with obedience. You with me? doing okay? Why is this important? Why do we need to repent? Look back at verse 17. He says, because the Kingdom of Heaven has come near. This is an urgent message. Repent, for the Kingdom of Heaven has come near. The Kingdom of God is God's rule and God's reign. It's God's reign which was breaking into the world in a new way through the ministry of Jesus. And with the arrival of King Jesus and His Kingdom, two realities come, have come clear become clear. The first reality is this. The kingdom is here means that salvation is here. Salvation has arrived in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ who has come to save sinners from their sin, to come and save sinners from the consequence of their sin, which is death, Eternal separation from the Lord. And this first reality should provide encouragement to us. It should provide comfort to us that salvation is here. It has arrived and is available to you and me, but we shouldn't miss the second sobering reality, the other side of this coin, which is that, that judgment is also here. In other words, this message of good news is good news to those who trust in Jesus who turn to Him and and trust in His sacrifice and and receive what He's accomplished on their behalf, it's good news for those who submit to Jesus as Lord and Savior, but for those who refuse to repent, for those of you who are trusting in your own good works or your own deeds, who are trusting in whatever else that's other than Christ, this is not good news. Repentance was and will always continue to be the first man of the Gospel. It's the first requirement of salvation. And Jesus' sermon is the same urgent sermon that we heard John the Baptist preach. And it's a it's a message of good news, but it's also a message of warning. And as I was reading this, I, I just wanted to ask you this morning, are you prepared? Are you ready for the return of the King? Jesus has come. Salvation is here. And Jesus came to shine light into the darkest places. And the darkest place in which you and I live is the darkness that exists inside of us and sin and death. Jesus is essentially saying here the great darkness that we have been living in has been upon us because of the great darkness that is within us. And there is a coming day when Jesus will return and he will judge the living and the dead. And on that day, there will be both blessing and judgment, comfort and pain, rest and anguish, eternal life and eternal punishment. And this is why Christ's call in Matthew chapter 4 is so urgent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Those who repent of their sin, who turn from their sin and trust in Christ's righteousness, they will receive life. Those who do not will receive eternal punishment. The dawning of the Kingdom of God shows us, friends, that all of us are in need. of. All of us are sinners. That we are not good. It shows people everywhere, Jew and Gentile, that for all of our clever moral pretending, for all of our complex moral philosophies, for all of our hiding behind religious masks, for all of the justifying of our own good works and our own good deeds, the fact of the matter is that apart from Christ, none of us are good. When you see Jesus, when you look at the light, not only have our sin and darkness been revealed, but we see the righteousness of God embodied in the person of Jesus. And when we look at ourselves in light of Christ's righteousness, how quickly do we realize that we are not it? That we are not what righteousness looks like. In other words, we need the grace of the light of life to shine into our life and to reveal to us what it is that we need to turn from, to repent from. We need to find out the lie of the world, the cultural sermon that proclaims you are enough. Be true to yourself is nothing more than the ravings of the spiritually dead. Jesus came to do that. He came to reveal to us our sin. He came to uncover and to show us the darkness that exists within us. But He didn't simply come to shame us and then judge us. No, Jesus came to banish the darkness. To rid the darkness. He came to bear the guilt. To bear the shame. To bear the curse upon Himself, Galatians says. You see, Jesus came not only to to shine a light into the darkness. And to bring you to a realization of the, the guilt that you carry. But He came to take the guilt and bear it upon Himself. To rescue us. Please hear me this morning. Do not turn away from the light of life. Yes, when the light shines into the darkness, it hurts. When you leave a a dark movie theater and you walk into the Las Vegas sun, it hurts your eyes. The light can be painful. Whatever the light is revealing in your heart this morning is a grace from God. Do not turn from it. Do not hide from it. Don't scurry into a dark corner. Don't let fear and shame prevent you from living in the light Because Jesus has come to banish the darkness. Friend, Jesus has come to forgive you, to wash you, to make you new. He is calling you right now to trust Him. Brothers and sisters, there is a King. And His name is Jesus. And our King has come to set things right. And the good news is, not only did God come to forgive sinners and to get them to heaven, but His kingdom is coming to earth as it is in heaven. The good news of the kingdom of God is not just that Jesus came to live the life of righteousness that we cannot and to die the death that we deserve, but He also rose from the dead. He also ascended to His throne where right now He is seated ruling and reigning. He is conquering the darkness. He is equipping His people to charge the very gates of hell and to plunder the world and to disciple all nations. Brothers and sisters, the dawning of the kingdom has come and we can find hope as citizens of God's perfect and eternal kingdom. Do you have that hope this morning? Let's pray. God, I thank You for the good news of the Gospel that's so clear in our text this morning. For those here this morning who have not trusted in You and have turned to everything else, whether it be their good and religious moral deeds or or trusting in themselves, Lord, I pray that the Gospel is clear this morning, that Your call and invitation is clear, and that they would respond. Lord, You are the one who gives us faith. Not only do You reveal and lead us to repentance, but You're the one that supplies us with faith. You're the one who takes our heart of stone and and turns it into a heart of flesh. And I pray, Lord, that You would do Your work this morning. I pray for those that are here this morning that have been living in the darkness, one foot in and one foot in the light. Lord, their salvation is secure, but they've been pursuing a, a life that, well, Lord, You're revealing to them this morning that they need to repent of. And I pray, Lord, that You would encourage their hearts this morning, that they would find that, Lord, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I pray, Lord, that You would encourage them that You are just and You are faithful to forgive them of their sins, that they can rest in the assurance and of, of the pardon that You've supplied to us through your work, through your life, your death, and your resurrection. Lord, I pray that you do that work in their hearts this morning. Lord, I thank you for your glory. Thank you for your goodness, your grace, and your mercy. Lord, I thank you that you are not shining the light to hurt us, but to heal us. And I pray, Lord, that we would come before Your throne confidently. For You say, Lord, that we can come confidently before the throne of grace this morning. I pray that we would do that. Give You all the glory and all the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.